0: Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson
1: and Stephanie Vandenberg.
2: Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So it feels like a good way to end the season um, before we take our summer break with a story that's really kind of dominated our news agendas for the last 18 months or so.
3: Yeah, it's the issue of aggression shortly after Russia full out invaded Ukraine in February last year the issue of whether and how to create a special tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression has been uh, one of the things that kept returning in our work. And we touched on it with Philippe Sands and in some other podcasts.
2: Yeah, I'm sure we're going to get into the detail as we gradually go through. But uh, here's my brief summary. Crime of aggression is an international crime, just like crimes against humanity, genocide and war crimes, All can be tried at the International Criminal Court, for example, which is against individuals. But the ICC regime the way that crimes of aggression has been set up, it means that it's restricted to only if both the aggressor state and the aggressive state have signed up to that bit of the Rome Statute. So in this case, Ukraine, Russia, it's a no-go at the ICC.
3: Yep. And the crime of aggression, it's good to remember, it's very much a leadership crime, meaning that it's centered on those who really take the decisions. And in international law, that has so far been determined to be uh, like a president, a minister of defense, a foreign minister, maybe some high-level uh, army officials. Those are the kind of people that, you, that you're looking at.
2: And the World Court, the International Court of Justice, the highest body of the United Nations doing judicial stuff, has said in a previous case that only an international court could lift the immunity of the president of another country and prosecute them. So together, a president and foreign minister and the head of government are colloquially known as the potential Troika who could be be put on trial? By an international court. The issue here
3: is functional immunity, and so they cannot be tried by non-international courts for stuff that they did out of their role as being head of government, president or the foreign minister but some of the other leadership figures possibly do not have that immunity under international law. But all this means that even though there's a number of countries like Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland, who have on their laws that somebody could be tried for the crime of aggression, it still would exclude putting either Vladimir Putin on trial, who is the president, and for example uh, Lavrov, who is the Russian foreign minister.
2: And all of this has lots of legal commentators tying themselves in knots. We've been reading it as it's gone through the batting one way and then the other, as everybody tries to kind of square these various circles together. And international could mean that a court would be authorised by the United Nations Security Council.
3: Yeah, this is what happened with the ad hoc international criminal tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda but that can't happen because Russia would veto. There is also possibly an option of having a tribunal authorized by the UN General Assembly, but some argue that that may not be a real true international court. And maybe the UN General Assembly has a lot of countries that are maybe not so very keen to all of a sudden have a special tribunal for aggression for Ukraine and not have something more permanent where it could deal with other aggression or are just fed up with all of the world's attention getting sucked up by Ukraine and not by conflicts in, in other parts of the world.
2: Yeah, we'll get uh, back into that uh, UN General Assembly option and the debates around it a bit bit later. And also I've seen coming up whether it would be international enough if some kind of regional body like the Council of Europe would back court. And they've already set up, for example, a reparations body for Ukraine, which um, I'm sure we'll do a podcast on uh, in due course.
3: Or, and the other option, which is really big for some countries is, and we'll come to who, is that some are saying that they'd only support a new tribunal that is embedded in Ukraine's own legal system with internationalized elements. And the problem here uh, that we see a lot of debate about is whether that would be international enough to lift the immunity of the top officials.
2: So I hope that little summary of the uh, questions that are all being asked doesn't uh, put two people off, because that's in fact at the heart of one of the big events of this month. If you're a Hague-based correspondent working on international justice, it was the launch of something that's not a court, not a UN investigative mechanism, but is something with a new name, a new logo, which I'm sure we'll put onto our website, and a new acronym, the ICPA. Now you were there, Steph, front row and centre. I spotted the back of your head on my screen in your lovely zuri dress. And I've picked out a few different elements, parts, aspects of what happened at the press conference for the launch of the International Centre for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression that I think may help us understand the full picture here.
0: Today, we gather here on occasion of a truly historic moment. I would say an epoch defining moment when the civilized world not only voices, but also shows by concrete actions that accountability is what matters the most.
3: Well, that was the Ukrainian Prosecutor General Andrei Kostin. Uh, let's just set the scene a bit more before we go into detail. The launch was at Eurojust, which is the kind of coordination body for European Union lawyers to cooperate on prosecutions of international justice. It's kind of a prosecutorial body. And the Eurojust boss, Ladislav Hamran, was also there.
4: The International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of uh, Aggression, which is a unique international cooperation platform uh, without any uh, precedent in uh, legal history. The ICPA will support national uh, investigators and prosecutors from Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland who are investigating the crime uh, of uh, aggression. They will be working uh, from these premises. The team of our four prosecutors
0: from Ukraine are now in The Hague and start their work
1: from today. Uh, We didn't convene this for a photo opportunity or to have the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity to speak to members of the, uh, the media. It really is an intent to make sure the law is of increasing relevance around the world
2: and that was uh, the top prosecutor at the International Criminal Court, the last voice you heard there, that's Kareem Khan, decrying the idea, God forbid, that this was a media moment. Before him, you heard the Ukraine Prosecutor General again, Kostin confirming his nation's commitment to this. So let's just get back to some of the basics. This is the inner group of national prosecutors, plus the ICC, who are all working on the crime of aggression. Yes,
3: it was a bit of a surprise to me about the heavy involvement of the ICC in this. But Poland, Latvia and Lithuania all have aggression on their statute books. And you can tell the Ukrainians are massively behind this new center because it's really, they see it as a stepping stone towards what they really want, which is a special tribunal on the crime of aggression They've already been investigating, and they are already part of the joint investigative team, which is looking into war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide committed in Ukraine. And the ICC has also joined that joint investigation team, which are usually housed at Eurojust. Now, DJ Randers is the EU Justice Commissioner, and he outlined Eurojust's role and how its structure and coordination works, what the real ideas of what the center will do.
0: With the ICPA, Eurogis will provide a structure to support and enhance the national investigations into the crime of aggression against Ukraine, and coordinate closely with the um, investigations of the International Criminal Court for crimes that fall within the
4: court's jurisdictions.
2: And practically, Hamran from Eurojust said that they've actually already got evidence to start working on.
4: For some weeks already, uh, we have been receiving submissions. Up to now, uh, we have uh, submissions uh, from uh, 10 uh, countries already, and uh, uh, many uh, will follow.
3: And included in these 10 countries that are cooperating is also the United States of America. Well, that's a bit of a surprise, isn't it, uh, Stephanie? The US? It's not in the European country, nor is it a member of the ICC, but they are really into this center. They have seconded a prosecutor, and they already said they had given some evidence to the database. And here, Kenneth Pellet, the Deputy U.S. Attorney General, explains what they've done.
0: The United States would contribute to the Eurojust Core International Crimes Evidence Database, And I am proud to announce that last week, the United States made its initial contribution to this very important database. It will not be our last.
2: So extraordinarily, they're fully on board. And we'd already heard they've got a special prosecutor who's been assigned to work directly at the ICPA.
0: The Justice Department's newly appointed US Special Prosecutor for the Crime of Aggression, Jessica Kim will represent the United States at the center, and she will have unfettered access to the substantial body of expertise and resources that the department has amassed in response to Russia's unlawful war of aggression against the people of Ukraine.
3: Yeah, and she gets uh, that unfettered access is an interesting uh, point, seeing the kind of um, things that we're hearing from the U.S., that there may be some tension between who should have access to what evidence, but... Hamran from Euro just also explained the key purpose of the ICPA is to secure crucial evidence and to start building up the case already. But it's not really an investigative body, so what does it do?
4: The center uh, is not going to have uh, direct investigative uh, powers. Therefore, the center itself uh, is not able to issue arrest warrants or to file indictments. How uh, the mechanics uh, of uh, the system will work, actually, as I mentioned, it will be a coordination platform. So, um, as I mentioned, we have today five countries which have their own national investigation concerning the crime of aggression based on their national law. These countries are Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Estonia, and obviously uh, Ukraine. So uh, we want to utilize those uh, investigators and prosecutors, and uh, we will build up a new level, a central level, which will coordinate the investigations in those countries.
2: Okay, I can take a bit of a pause with uh, all of that sort of load of information that we've just dumped on people there. Um, because really, for me, there's just begs again lots of questions and I seem to spend every podcast saying I've got lots of questions out of this so I want to understand how does evidence gathering and analysis of evidence not mean investigation because that's what I assume an investigation is how exactly are they going to work with the national jurisdictions who are involved I don't understand the point of having the US and the ICC apart from kind of person power maybe that's all it's about but how does that that work and you know, we're going to have to come back to this, but where, oh, where are we actually going to see this evidence being put to the test in the end? Because they're at the heart of this, at the centre of this kind of complicated onion that they've just unpeeled for us, all these different layers, there is no heart. There is no place where this crime is going to be prosecuted. Anyway, sorry, do you want to comment, Stephanie, on Janet's little rant there? No, I mean, I agree.
3: And that's... I think it's it's one of those things where this is the best they could get. They want to have something like, I guess, the triple I M or some UN investigative body, where the idea was before that they would make kind of oven ready uh, cases that to people to move on to. But I. Feel that maybe European countries in the US is putting a bit of the brakes on that. And this is kind of what they, this seems like a typical Dutch solution where everybody a gets compromise. a little bit of what a compromise, everybody gets a little bit of what they want, but it's not really anything super concrete. But we're going to pretend that it is while everybody gets to keep the fantasy that maybe their variant of what we, what they want is going to be the one that comes out on top.
2: Well, apart from that and those kind of basics that that were outlined, I thought that I'd pick out another couple of the comments from the press conference. There was an acknowledgement, which I think is really important for everybody, that there is no international tribunal in which this specific international crime can be properly prosecuted because the ICC can only do it in very limited circumstances. And that despite other acts of aggression that we've seen by different countries over the years, I mean, this is the only one that's actually getting the debate going and the traction to to see a potential tribunal to, to be created, which does make quite a lot of countries in the world uncomfortable. So I thought I'd picked out a couple of the quotes from the ICC prosecutor Karim Khan and the Ukrainian prosecutor general Andrei Kostin, which uh, reflect that part of the debate.
1: Ukraine does not represent the first act of aggression that has taken place since the end of the Second World War. But we have to try to strive and find a way for our future generations for peace and stability in the world, that the provisions of the UN Charter, the foundational principle of the UN Charter, which is the Pacific settlement of disputes, and the prohibition on the crime of aggression is something that we need to etch, chisel into the architecture so it's no longer a concept that is frozen in time. By the idea
0: of tribunal is to reach the highest military and political leadership of Russia, including so-called members of Troika, to be prosecuted on international level. My position is that we need proper tribunal than fast tribunal.
1: We are in a world in which there is a very imperfect application of the law. Instead of wringing our hands and lamenting it, we need to play our part to make it stronger and apply it with more consistency. Being very pragmatic, I believe that
0: one of the tasks of the group of prosecutors and experts who will work starting from today here in The Hague will be not only to exchange evidences, not only to analyze them, but also to build a prosecutorial strategy how to build the case and at some stage to prepare drafts of the documents which could be used then by the tribunal. I hope that this tribunal to prosecute uh, the crime of aggression would be international because the crime of aggression committed by Russia against Ukraine is the crime against global peace and security.
3: already explained in the press conference that Ukraine has already collected large number of evidence and has identified more than 600 people who are notified of suspicion in absentia for the crime of aggression and has said that indictments against 312 of them uh, had already been served and 20 people have been convicted.
2: That was all um, in absentia because uh, they're not people who they can actually bring into court in Ukraine at the moment. I also spotted, and I'm sure you did as well, Steph, an interesting me- message from Reinders from the EU Justice Commissioner that they, I mean, he, meaning the European members of the International Criminal Court, will actually try to change the Rome Statute and will try to beef up in some form the bit of the Rome Statute that is on aggression. Here he is.
0: And I want just to add that for the long run, we have said that many times, the best solution will be to go to the ICC. So it's the reason why in my discussions with the Member States, with the Minister of Justice of the Member States, I have asked to table uh, an amendment to the Rome Statute to give the competence to the ICC. But I'm not sure that it will be with a possible application now, very uh, soon, but we'll see.
2: So what do you think, Steph? Does that have a hope in hell of going through? I mean, there is momentum now. So I think
3: it. I was surprised to hear that they got, they went as far as to table a proposal for this. Um, on the other hand, again, I think that this may be a kind of European Union idea of that, gosh, it's going to be expensive to put up a whole other tribunal. We're, all, we're already putting so much resources in the ICC. Wouldn't it be lovely if it's all in one place? So maybe... We can just try and get this aggression thing folded into to the ICC, which is what Khan kind of had hinted at before. But he seemed a lot more pragmatic at this press conference where he basically said, it's going to take a long time if this is ever going to happen. And let's be pragmatic about the best way to achieve justice for everybody. And we should be involved in this center as well.
2: Yeah, I think pragmatism, you're right, is the order of the day at the moment. Um, just, I know I'm kind of going on about this press conference, but I think it was really significant. There were lots of uh, interesting moments in there. Here's one of them. This is Andre Kostin responding to a question from a particular journalist about the potential nature of the tribunal. The questioner asked whether a hybrid tribunal, one that's partly Ukrainian, partly international, would actually be the best way forward.
0: Let's forget the work hybrid. Because there could be no hybrid accountability for real crime. So let's use some other wording. Like what? Special Tribunal for the Crime of Aggression.
2: So you hear that, you know, the Ukrainians are absolutely not in for a world where we're talking about the word hybrid anymore. I mean, they are sticking to the word special. And also, I couldn't not play this. This is Steph in her Reuters role being... Really sneaky, trying to get—I don't know how many questions you tried to get in here. If I count the the question marks, there are at least four that you tried to get into into one question. So here's here's Steph in her inimitable role. Stephanie Vandenberg from
3: Reuters. I have a question for Mr. Khan about the cooperation uh, with this uh, ICPA. The U.S. has seconded a prosecutor. Can we expect the secondment also of ICC personnel to the center? Will you be sharing all of the evidence you have collected? Will it be a selection? And Mr. Randers opened the door kind of for also the possibility of maybe at some point an aggression prosecution at the ICC. Do you see that also as a possible endpoint? And then maybe also for Mr. Polit, would the U.S. accept an ICC prosecutions for the crime of aggression in the situation for Ukraine.
1: Well, Stephanie, you're, you're very canny. You asked three questions under the guise of, of, of one to three different people. So um,
2: I, I'll answer it in the way that I think fit. So Khan went on to do that. I mean, he answered quite um, generally. But after that, you got a second chance, didn't you, to, to actually re-ask the question? I I did. I asked Pauline again, if
3: it does happen that the ICC gets an amendment that they could try the crime of aggression under their statute in Ukraine, would the US also support then uh, that prosecution at the ICC uh, in the same way that they would support an internationalized tribunal? And while I was asking that, I could see Khan kind of leaning over to uh, Reiner saying, I'd like the answer to that as well.
2: And what did Polite have to say uh, to your uh, sharp question? Oh, there was a very
3: uh, diplomatic, uh, we're not at that, that junction yet, so I'm not going to say anything about that at this time, uh, which is what I expected. But I I mean, I know I was asking a lot of, of questions of Khan, but he was also quite, everybody was quite willing to talk. So I think that uh, last question spurred on a lot of extra answers where everybody was Happy to pile on their comments uh, to it, uh, which got some of the. We used some of the quotes from that question, not so much because they were actually answering my question, which almost never happens in in press conference, but because they were. They took it as an opportunity to vent their uh, views.
2: Yeah, and one final, final, final bit on this press conference was for me, having looked at the crime of aggression, I really appreciated the way that the head of Eurojust, Ladislav Hamrán, actually laid out the real practical difficulty of what the evidence of the crime of aggression is because it's really specific and it's really not it's not the easiest thing to prove because you need to have linkage evidence showing both who made the orders and how that can be tied to specific events
4: it's a big thing. First of all, you have to prove the aggression. And this can be done, for example, uh, through evidence of uh, bombardments, uh, blockage of ports, uh, attacks by armed forces on land, sea, and air. Now you see the scope of, of the challenge uh, because you, you know how many different incidents uh, actually happened uh, in, in uh, Ukraine. But um, the evidence concerning bombardments or blockage of ports and, this and so on is not enough. Uh, we have to also link all these attacks with certain people who are in the leading position, either in the political leadership or military leadership. And this will be another big uh, challenge ahead of us because we have to ensure that first of all, we have admissible evidence. Secondly, that uh, we have um, all elements of crime properly documented. And then the third one will be that uh, we will evaluate, assess all the evidence translate those evidence into two languages, and prepare a truly international file for either domestic courts or international courts, whether present or uh, future.
2: What did you make of that, Steph? Anything more you want to comment on?
3: No, I thought that was really interesting. And I also felt that that is a good explanation of what we're really talking about. It it does seem to me that Ukraine has lots and lots of prosecutions for the crime of aggression, where we're all saying it's a leadership crime. So I th- maybe it's Ukraine extending that to, I don't know, leaders on the provincial level and Uh, You know, when we were talking about the Tribunal of Aggression, I think I saw bouncing around on Twitter where people were saying well, no more, you really cannot expect more than a handful of people or maybe two dozen people to be prosecuted for this special tribunal because we really want only the top of the top. And now if you look at 300 and, and uh, something indictments, that's that's quite a
2: lot. So who, how, where? Uh, yeah, it just raises all those questions for us. But I mean, if you're still with us in this podcast, I just wanted to add a tiny bit onto the end. You were also at a press conference online, I understand, uh, Steph, with Beth Van Schack, the US war crimes prosecutor, a little bit earlier. I appreciated the, that you shared that uh, back with me and I listened to it and I wanted to pull a few things out for our audience because she does provide some of the more sort of inside baseball analysis of why things are as they are to to understand how the US has got to the position it has of um, wanting to see an internationalised tribunal. But first of all, there was a bit of a pat on our backs. Beth got a little haircut joke in as she... Uh, responded to a question from you, Steph.
5: I was just listening to asymmetrical haircuts yesterday while I was driving to a haircut. So, <laughs> appropriately enough.
2: So, thank you so much for that shout out, Beth. So, just a quick summary. She summarised five different ways to accountability. And I was kind of surprised to start with when I saw that number, because I think we've counted up four previously on the show. So, her five were the International Criminal Court national courts. And she highlighted the uh, atrocity advisory group, which is advising uh, Ukraine's national courts that's supported, I think, by the US and the UK. Then she also had number three was the joint investigative team, which we've just been speaking about, which involves quite a number of different different countries working under the auspices of Eurojust. Number four was kind of a preview that she said, because you recorded, you recorded this earlier, she said there's going to be an International Centre for the Prosecution of Aggression, which we've just spent the rest of the podcast discussing. And fifth, was in the US, having potential cases there. And she said in the Department of Justice, they've appointed a former Nazi hunter as counsel to the Attorney General on this. She pointed out the new powers that Congress has given them in terms of evidence on on Ukraine
5: we are p- conducting our own potential investigations of cases that might have some kind of a U.S. nexus. And we are benefiting now from new authorities that Congress gave us at the end of last year that have expanded our ability to prosecute war crimes in the United States, even though maybe potentially neither the perpetrator nor the, the victim is a U.S. person. So uh, we now have full present in jurisdiction. We do need to have the perpetrator present in the United States but we can start initiating investigations.
3: Yeah, that was a, a, a bit of a new one for me to include that in 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 the accountability effort. I did know that there were some efforts to look at whether there are assets in the U.S. that they could freeze or take. But this seems to be also very much focused on people in the U.S. they could potentially target. And she did answer the specific question I had about why the U.S. is backing the idea of an internationalized tribunal And not going the UN General Assembly route. And she explained that.
5: We do favor an internationalized tribunal that would be deeply embedded within the Ukrainian national system. It has the most firm legal basis. It has the ability to garner broad cross-regional support. And it has the ability to be set up quickly, to be nimble, be able to to be established um, immediately because there's an existing legal framework. We have both legal and practical concerns about the alternative model that is being considered, which would be a general assembly backed model. Um, one concern is that the General Assembly under the UN Charter system has the ability only to make recommendations. It cannot take coercive it does not have coercive powers and it cannot take coercive measures. So it would be dependent upon voluntary contributions and cooperation of states. and so it's hard to square that with. A criminal process that might be going forward against an individual um, whose state has not um, co- has not consented to this, and an individual who will be entitled to um, challenge the grounds on which he might be taken into custody. Um, and could a could the General Assembly take someone into custody essentially and impose a sentence on that person? She also
3: provided a brief analysis of the international politics around the voting at the General Assembly, and she said she doesn't want to risk. It ending up with little backing.
5: The practical concern about being able to garner sufficient votes within the General Assembly, the minute the General Assembly has been asked to do something concrete, such as even kick Russia off the Human Rights Council, there's a precipitous drop in the number of affirmative votes. Likewise, with respect to the establishment of the Register of Claims, that only garnered about 90 votes. And so there's a real concern that if the General Assembly were asked to create and fund a new justice institution, the votes might fall off even further. And we may end up with a situation in which the number of abstentions and no votes exceed the number of yes votes.
2: Okay, uh, that was a bit of a mammoth uh, gallop there through uh, everything that's going on at the moment around potential new tribunals, around the crime of aggression. And uh, now we're going to uh, head off to our summer break. And as it has become our little tradition, our current intern,
3: Jason Smates, has been listening to the back catalogue and has pulled out four episodes he think that you might find interesting so that you're not without us during the summer period.
2: And we're going to be back ourselves with some new episodes in September, which we're already planning now. There are already far too many subjects for us to cover, but we're always interested uh, to hear from you what you would like uh, to have on our show. So don't hesitate to, uh, to let us know. And just to say thank you so much for the generous support some people have shown via our Patreon and the tip jar to the podcast, and also especially people who are just willing to come on the show and willing to be interviewed by us. Yeah, we really appreciate our audience and we
3: look forward to being on your podcast feed soon again. Bye.
0: Bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.